Welcome to the BOK Economics Podcast, brought to you by BOK Capital Management. BOK Capital Management is a 100% Black-owned, student-run hedge fund that focuses on exposing students to the field of active investment management. The purpose of the podcast is to enrich listeners from around the globe by highlighting the importance of economics. Economics provides a deeper insight into the events that are currently taking place in the world and helps us understand the decisions that have been made and their potential impacts. I think economics is important because it's one of the most overlooked social sciences and it affects every aspect of our daily lives. I believe that economics is important because of the insight that you can gain into consumer behavior. Economics allows you to contextualize the world. BOK Economics. 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 Hi guys, welcome to the BOK Economics Podcast. I'm your co-host Amin Amari. And I'm your other co-host Justin Holmes. And today we have Nobel Prize winning professor Dr. Paul Romero. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks. So, uh, to start us off just a little, could you please tell us uh, your background and your work and what inspired you to start this career? Hmm, well, like I guess the question is how far back should I go? I was an undergraduate physics major. Um, and I was majoring in physics because my father was a politician. He was in like democratic politics in the, the state of Colorado. Later, he became the governor. but. Um, I wanted to do something completely different from him, so I was studying cosmology, which was about as far from practical relevance and you know, like social problem solving as, as I could I could get. Uh, so, in some ways, when I shifted back in graduate school towards economics, I was kind of moving back towards the kind of environment I grew up in, which is one which is very you know uh, concerned about. Um, social policy uh, but but I think I was marked to some extent by the training in physics and mathematics it uh, it makes you I, I think in the best case it can help you learn to think abstractly about complicated problems and abstraction is the process of stripping away a lot of the detail and complications to then zoom in on the pieces that you think are most important so Subtraction, I've decided over time, is a, is a very good skill, and I, I think physics served me well by, by giving me that. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think there was something in my upbringing which encouraged me to look for paths that were different from the paths that everybody else was taking. I mean, even to pursue like physics and uh, to avoid, uh, uh, you know, like law, which my father had done and politics and practical things. It was a little bit of a kind of a finding my own, my own path. And then when I became an economist, I found that I was thinking about questions that other people weren't considering. And uh, that that turned out well for me. I think in any career, there's often a kind of a crowd which is going in a particular direction, and it's tempting to follow the crowd because you feel like you'll be, you know, there'll be other people referring to you, and you won't be on your own, and so forth. But it's hard to stand out in a crowd, and if you're willing to go 
off in a direction where um, there are few or maybe nobody pursuing it, I think it might be easier to uh, to stand out. So my my one general bit of advice to to young people is don't hesitate to pursue your own instincts, even if it means that you're a little bit, uh, 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 you know, a little bit off on your own compared to the rest of the crowd. It's easy with crowding or herding for everybody to get convinced that something must be right because everybody else thinks it's right, when later it turns out it's, it's, it's not. I think that's very great advice for, you know, those of us here in our college journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, could you share like a little bit of insight as your time as the chief economist of the World Bank and like what were kind of some of the most pressing economic challenges you encountered and how did you like go about addressing these? Well, um, the world, the chief economist is an interesting position at the World Bank. I had 400 people who reported to me. So it isn't just a policy position, it's a management position. Now I think some economists who've been brought in from the outside uh, treat it as a policy or academic position and they leave it to others to in effect run the, the department. I was brought in though with an explicit mandate uh, to try and uh, undertake some reforms in research. The, the president of the World Bank had reformed the rest of the bank but not research. And he thought, and I agreed, that there was room to make some changes to improve uh, the research department. So, so I spent a bit of, quite a bit of my time actually trying to manage the organization rather than deal with the external um, issues. But I should say that it was a time where um, uh, I started in the fall of 2016. Uh, President Trump was elected uh, soon soon after I started and began a process of really pulling back from engagement with the, the big multinational organizations. So it was a time where the U.S. was less present on the world stage and where these organizations were um, at risk of losing a little bit of their influence because the U.S. is a very important player and the U.S. wasn't paying very much attention. So I got stuck and I was, stuck is the wrong word, but I ended up in this somewhat difficult position where I wanted to undertake some reforms that I think were really badly needed. Um, that involves uh, being open about weaknesses, being a little bit critical, um, making people uncomfortable, making people unhappy. But yet, I didn't want to undermine the the, the institutions. So that was uh, the the crux of the challenge facing me. Um, there's a there's a when I left, I I wrote an op-ed where I tried to distinguish between two different functions that the World Bank can serve. One is fundamentally a diplomatic function. It's a place where representatives of China and Russia and India and the United States and Britain and France sit around a table and approve, this is the board of directors, they approve decisions that the bank makes about lending, lending projects. Some of these are not the most important decisions, but 
it's good for the world to have a place where people from different countries that are often in conflict with each other, it's good to have a place where people go through the experience of uh, making decisions, working with others, forming even personal relationships that may be valuable as they pursue careers, often in you know the, the foreign service, or diplomatic service. So uh, the the diplomatic function is is important. It builds a core of a few people who know how to to work together, talk about problems, and so when some crisis spins up. Um, those relationships are what help smooth uh, the decision-making process. The kind of crisis that you can confront would be, say, the, the COVID um, pandemic or, uh, say, the financial crisis in 2008-9. I didn't experience a crisis of that magnitude while I was at the bank, but I was conscious of how important it could be as an organization when a crisis like that comes. The other role for the bank, though, uh, that it's tried to seek out is to be a kind of a research institution like university to publish you know, documents and statistics. And I think, frankly, those two missions are in conflict with each other. The, the diplomacy sometimes relies on the convenient fiction, you know, like a willingness to, well, we'll all pretend something's true even when it's not quite true. And... Um, uh, there's a, uh, a willingness to be polite and avoid the, the awkward points. Academic life, on the other hand, requires that we be forthright, direct about our disagreements. I think what you said, so-and-so, I think what you said is wrong, and here's why. This is the evidence, and here's the lie. There's a logical problem with your argument. And we go back and forth. We listen. We object. We disagree. And then ultimately what comes out of it is a kind of a consensus about what's, what's true. Um, part of, part of the, the process is you criticize others when you think they've made a mistake, and you listen when somebody criticizes you because all of us can make, can make mistakes. Um, and the, the organization, the research department, I didn't think had the right kind of culture for... Um, facilitating, encouraging that kind of blunt discussion. It was kind of influenced by the the rest of the culture, which was more diplomatic in the bank. And so I, I raised a question that I, people there don't like, but where I was really asking, is the bank the right place to try and do research? They could take the funds that they use to support their research department, uh, use those funds to support, say, universities, you know, and, and universities all over the world. And there are many promising students and faculty members and in, in countries where the university system is new and it's, it's, it's getting better. I think the bank would do better to uh, support universities around the world rather than to try and run an in-house um, academic uh, system. But that was, a, that was kind of a big shock to a bunch of people who were employed there and uh, liked their jobs, didn't uh, didn't want any any change. So, so those are the the kind of structural or foundational debates that were playing out mm -hmm. when when I was there. Yeah, very interesting to hear that. Uh, there was also, I should say, there was a report that had been influential called the Doing Business Report, mm -hmm. where the bank ranked countries based on basically how hard was it as a place to to do business. 
And the problem that I saw was that it was too easy to manipulate those reports. And the, the reports were influential. Countries cared if they had moved up or had moved down in the doing business report each, each year. So I ended up leaving over a, a kind of a dispute about the, the doing business report. Uh, subsequently, there's been uh, a lot more reporting about uh, how the, you know, the, the president and COO that I had worked with were basically manipulating the results for China because of pressure from, from China. And China uh, was an important ally in doing some things the bank wanted to do to, to have more funds to, to develop, uh, uh, to provide more lending around the world. And um, the whole system, I think, ended up you know, compromising um, and pressuring people to change the, the academic results. So I think I was right that this system was kind of ripe for abuse. It had been abused, I think, in, in other ways. And uh, I, I'm comfortable, even though I left under kind of conditions of uh, debate and you know disagreement. I'm comfortable that I, I did the right the right thing. So. That's really great to hear. You know, I think it's important that we distinguish the kind of scholastic approach of pure. Uh, devotion to research that academia provides while ignoring the diplomatic processes of bureaucratic organizations. So, on yeah. the note of uh, academia, uh, your specialty in economics is economic growth. Yeah. Uh, and your famous 1983 dissertation on endogenous uh, gross growth. 83, 83. I'm older than, uh, you know, 1983. Yeah. 83. Yeah. yeah. It's a long time ago. Um, so, uh, Forty, you know, forty years ago. So, yeah. and you know, it, for background for our listeners, it followed extensive uh, studies of long-run gro growth during the '50s and '60s, and this mm -hmm. led to your recognition by the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. Could you describe the key contributions that led to it and the impact of it uh, in the field of economics that we can see yeah. today? Um. I, I was referring before to this process of abstraction. Sometimes you need to go really high and uh, to see clearly from a distance before that before you then delve back into the details, the weeds. Um, the very high level picture of economic growth is one of continued growth and increasing growth. The rate of growth has been increasing over time. And this was a pretty, you know, promising, optimistic thing to, to note. When I was doing this work, it was a time of a lot of pessimism about the prospects for the economy. So stepping way back put me a little bit at odds with everybody else who was very pessimistic at the time. But the long run view suggests things are getting better and better and they're getting better faster and faster. So uh, the question that that then raises is how do we reconcile the facts with our theories? The standard theory is one that goes back to uh, Reverend Malthus, who's the person that we refer to when we talk about a Malthusian kind of uh, perspective on the world. Malthus said, look, there's a finite amount of land on earth. Uh, there's only so much more food you can grow on a given amount of land. You get more and more people, 
eventually people are going to starve. So the, his conjecture was that the limiting factor for the total population would be starvation and that the quality of life per person would go down because with a given amount of food, more people means less food per person. And the logic of his argument is, is really kind of hard to, to, to debate. Uh, you know, if you take something like square meters of land, you know, or total quantity of water or any, any physical quantity, more people means less of that per, per person. So uh, the challenge is how do you reconcile the fact that things have really been getting much better over time and better at faster and faster rates with the, the logic of scarcity of, of objects. And the, the conclusion or the, the, the solution to that conflict was one that many people had some intuition for. It's some process they referred to as research or science or technology. I tried to sharpen the distinction and say, well, we really have an economics of objects that are scarce, but then we have an economics of ideas and we need to think about producing an idea, distributing an idea, all the kinds of things with ideas, just like what we do with objects. And then, of course, the question you have to ask is, well, how are ideas different from objects? Because there are clearly some, um, some differences there. We don't have anything like science for you know, producing or distributing objects, so why do we have this system of you know, organized science? Um, so ideas are different. And again, people had had an intuition for that, but I don't think they were precise enough or clear enough about what was different about ideas. And then what does that mean for how we organize our policies, our societies? So it was, a, in some ways it was responsive to the mood of the moment, which was one of great pessimism about productivity. Um, and I was lucky in the sense that shortly after I, my thesis was done, uh, the IBM PC was introduced and we had this whole period of the, the digital revolution that showed everybody how important new ideas were for, for the economy. So my work was recognized when other people who tried to think about these issues had been in that like 10 years before had been kind of neglected. Um, so it was responsive to the temporary pessimism of that, of that era. But it was not the kind of, at least immediately, it was not the kind of economics where you say, okay, well, based on this result, we should go in and change this, you know, social welfare program or this, this labor policy or the Fed should change how it manages the money supply. You know, I wasn't addressing those kind of specifics. It was really much more um, the high level. Um, now, that's kind of leads up to the question of how has it changed economics? Well, I think it is changing economics, but to be honest, I think it's slowly. Um, I think people have been slow to fully absorb the implications of the economics of, of ideas. Uh, the economics of objects is just, it's easy, it's familiar, it's, it's straightforward. Um, the economics of ideas is a little bit harder to, to grapple with, but it, I think, uh, I mean, look at what we're doing. We're recording a podcast. Mm -hmm. We're sharing ideas with people. I mean, we're in the idea part of the economy, not the object part. We're not bending metal. We're not delivering things to different places and locations. Um, 
so I think economists have been a little bit slow to to come to, to grips with this. Um, I'm, you know, as you can tell, I was saying before, I think it's good to be blunt and, you know, science proceeds by being critical. I'm, I'm a little bit of a critic of uh, the economics uh, profession. But let me be clear. I, I think my criticisms suggest that it might be a great profession to pursue. If everything was going great in economics, it would be hard to come in as a young person and make a lot of difference. It's like, well, it's great. You know, what, what do you need to do? But I think, I think it could be doing a lot, uh, a lot better. I think, um, let me give you some examples. I, I think that um, one of the standard results, the oldest result really in economics that there are gains from trade. Adam Smith was big on, you know, it was important to trade between nations. I don't think people have thought enough about the role of ideas in generating gains from trade as opposed to the role of physical objects. Uh, if it's really about ideas, maybe we don't need as much in the way of shipping containers that are moving things around the world, and what we need more is better communication and better sharing of ideas. I think the theory points to the biggest gains being uh, related to trade and sharing of, of ideas. Um, and, and again, if you step back at the abstract level, the intuition is really simple. Uh, you know, if, if somebody uh, discovered like a bottle that had a formula, uh, that had some medicine in it that could save the life of a child, mm -hmm. so like one bottle, one child, that's what you get. If you develop a formula for making the stuff you can put in a bottle and save the life of a child, that formula can get used over and over again and can save like millions of, of lives of children. And this isn't this isn't like a made up example. There's something that people refer to as oral rehydration therapy, which was the formula for how to make water with a little bit of minerals and salt in it and a little bit of sugar that you could give to a child who's suffering from a disease like cholera. And what kills them is um, dehydration. And if you get the mix right um, and just give them water, you can rehydrate them and save their lives. So oral rehydration therapy, the, the only other alternative is you put them in hospitals with intravenous lines in poor countries. That was very difficult to do. Oral rehydration therapy saved millions of lives, just a simple insight. And it was, you know, the odd part about it was adding sugar to the, the mix. It turns out the sugar makes it easier to, for your gut to absorb it when you're, when you're sick. And so, usually, you wouldn't think of sugar as a very healthy thing, but in this case, it really, it really helped. So, uh, um, I think we need to rethink trade theory from the perspective of: Are we talking about trade in goods or trade in ideas? That's one example. I think another area um, is we need to look at competition. the The usual notion. I remember reading uh, a book by a famous economist named Marshall, who we published in 1890. Marshall uh, said that, well, there was a tendency for a uh, competitive market for many firms to compete with each other. But he recognized that there's some arguments which suggest that the biggest firm should actually have advantages over smaller firms. That should mean that that big firm gets bigger and bigger the smaller firms get driven out, and eventually you end up with one firm that really dominates the market, and it's it's not competition amongst the, the many. Well, Marshall kind of uh, made up some stories, you know, like the firms are like the trees, and 
when the trees get old, they, they can't compete as well, so new firms can come in. And there was no evidence there. And there was no, really, if you look at it, there's really no logic in that. But we seem to see in a lot of markets, you know, think about the market for transportation services or, uh, uh, you know, cars, ma manufacturing cars. We saw, you know, many firms competing. What this new digital world is driving home for us is that um, there may be, in, in the production of ideas, there may be much stronger tendencies toward having the biggest firm dominate um, and uh, drive everybody else out of the market. And so we now have you know, firms, new firms like Google and internet search or um, Facebook and you know, kind of communication and messaging with, with your friends. Uh, where a single firm just dominates the whole worldwide uh, uh, market. And um, this is something that uh, we need to think about in terms of policy. There's a lot of good things about competition and we lose those good things if uh, one firm is going to end up dominating. So I think, I think economists have been slow to take on board how really radically different the economics of ideas are from the economics of objects. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's a glass half full or half empty. Yeah, the people are, are recog I mean, I was certainly recognized for, the, for discovering something or pointing out, clarifying issues that were important. But I, I'm a little disappointed that uh, everyday working economists, I think, haven't um, pushed these uh, ideas to their practical um, uh, conclusions um, in the way they should. But, but as I said, that means that it's it's a kind of a ripe area for young young people who want to go into economics. Uh, mm -hmm. That was great to hear that. And just like looking at like kind of current market conditions, and you were talking a little bit about like your theory with economic ideas and like competition is good. Like, we know you have a lot of expertise in both economic growth and market dynamics. Like, what is your perspective on, like, current economic landscape, especially with, like, the federal def deficit, mm -hmm. possible government shutdown, energy prices rising? Right, right. Like, where do you kind of see the market going in the yeah. future? Well, I, um, I, I, I was telling you before that I've gotten into programming. Mm -hmm. one, one thing that programming is good for is helping you track data. So I've been trying to follow the inflation numbers uh, pretty consistently for about a year now. The, the short answer uh, about inflation is that it's coming down very consistently. This is very good news. And it's actually, to be honest, it's surprising news because most economists uh, thought, including me, uh, we all thought that uh, you needed a recession. You needed unemployment to go up to bring inflation down, but yet we're seeing, you know, steady reductions in inflation without a recession, without any increase in, in unemployment. So we don't quite understand why this is happening, but the, the news on the inflation front is good. And you have to be a little bit careful about analyzing the data to see this. The fluctuations, the numbers fluctuate up and down every month. Um, I look at the consumer price index that excludes food and energy because mm -hmm. food and energy are very volatile. But it turns out there's also something else that you have to watch out for, which is that inflation month by month has a seasonal pattern. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Inflation tends to be a little bit higher in the first few months of a year. So you come out of like November, December, the period leading up to Christmas, and you're thinking, oh, inflation's really low, we're great. Then January, February, March, all of a sudden inflation's much higher. You might say, oh, no, we're in trouble. The Fed's going wrong. Everything's going wrong. Inflation's getting worse. It's actually just the, the annual seasonal pattern where it's mm -hmm. always higher in the, the first part of the year. So I discovered kind of to my surprise that uh, uh, seasonal patterns are pretty important when you're looking at inflation numbers, trying to see what's the trend. And um, also the, the, the seasonal adjustment uh, pa uh, the, the process that statisticians use to, quote, take the seasonal patterns out of the data are not ideal. They leave some of the seasonals in. So um, uh, this was a case where just taking the data seriously and thinking carefully about um, uh, seasonals led me to look at the data. I had never looked at seasonally unadjusted data, just the raw data before. Mm -hmm. But when you look at them, there's a kind of an easy way to um, get rid of the seasonal effects. If you think that, for example, January, the inflation rate's always a little bit higher, you compare when what was the inflation rate in January of 2023 to January of 2022. You just take the difference. Mm -hmm. And then if it's lower in 2023, you say, ah, okay, uh, good, we're making progress. You don't worry about like December of 2022 compared to January of 2023, because that'll have the seasonal in it, you just compare the same month uh, in the current year and the, the, the previous year. So so this is a little bit of a, a new area for me, but it's, it's easy to do if you can write some code where every month I get the data and I just try and mm -hmm. look at it. Anyway, the good news there is um, um, inflation is really coming down. And the economy remains very strong, even though interest rates have gone up. You mentioned debt as well. Um, debt could be a concern in some circumstances. I don't think the United States has gotten to the point where debt is an issue. Debt is something where it's a little bit like getting too close to the cliff. You kind of get closer and closer and closer, nothing bad happens. Then, you know, at the edge, you know, something really bad happens. So. Greece got into trouble with debt, and what it means to get in trouble is all of a sudden nobody wants to lend to you anymore. You're kind of like living on continued borrowing, and then suddenly nobody will lend to you, and then you're in you're in trouble. Um, I don't think the United States is even close to uh, that kind of a what some people call a sudden stop in mm -hmm. in, in borrowing. I think at some point um, we'll have to do like what we did under Clinton, where we made some changes in the tax laws and we, we raised some additional um, uh, additional revenue. We'll do that again at some point in the future. I, I don't think the total level of the debt is, is any big concern. The shutdown is a big concern, but it's, it's a concern because it's a sign that our political system is just broken. Um, and not broken in the sense, that, like if, if, if if, every, if everybody wants policy to go, you know, in one direction, uh, the other people want it to go in the other direction, we'll say it's broken because it's going in that direction. And I don't mean it's broken because it's going in this direction or that direction. It's broken because we can't make any decisions about what direction to go in. We're paralyzed. And so, uh, you know, the, the Congress can't get to a decision on anything. 
the um, the shutdown is because of an artificial kind of constraint, but we're gonna that constraint is gonna bind because the the house right now can't make a decision about what what they want to do. Um, this worries me a lot. I I um. Let me give you an example of a decision that we were able to make when I was younger, and I don't think we could make right now. During the 1980s, when I um, was getting uh, first getting my job, um, there was evidence that emerged that a particular class of compounds called the chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, were destroying the ozone layer. And the ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet radiation that could really be very harmful. It protects all forms of life from that. So uh, government needed to act. The Reagan administration decided to ban the production of these CFCs. And then George Shultz, uh, who became the Secretary of State, negotiated a treaty with all other countries around the world. So they all agreed to ban CFCs as well. Um, I don't think the current political system in the United States would allow us to make a hard decision like that. Like, okay, it's going to be a little bit painful. We're going to have to make some changes, but it's important. Let's just do it. Um, what we would have is uh, just endless arguments and, you know, lobbyists and uh, political infighting and, you know, uh, we can't get anything done. So that worries me. Um, and I don't know how we got out of that. Um, um, I, one of the things that I've been doing just in my talking with people is reminding them that our system has a judicial branch and a legislative branch, but an executive uh, branch as well. And it's actually important for the executive branch to be able to do things. There's a lot of uh, people these days who think, well, we want the judges to get in the middle of making a decision. But judges judges don't typically know what to do about, you know, like CFCs. There's people in, you know, the, the, the FDA and, uh, and NASA and uh, NOAA, the, the National Oceanic and, uh, Administration. And there's people with scientists and people who know about something like CFCs. And I think it's a mistake to think somehow judges are the you know the the wise uh people that we can always call on to make decisions and i think legislatures are often as we're seeing just dysfunctional they can't they can't agree so what we need is some kind of a system where i think somebody in the executive branch can make can make decisions the problem is is that you know we're afraid that we'll get somebody in the executive branch who will make bad decisions and so then we're just we're just paralyzed i i think that a good way forward on this is to recognize that we've got a federal system you can give powers to the governors who are executive uh, representatives in the states you can even give powers to mayors and uh, let's give more power to people who are in the executive branch who can make decisions make things happen and you know have the the federal government get out of the way because um the supreme court the congress is are just a mess right now and uh we don't trust the you know the the executive branch so um i i hope we um we think about this idea of um 
uh, strengthening the executive branch, but doing it by pushing decision making down to, to lower um, lower levels of government. Uh, you know, the other part of the government that I think we don't study enough is the is the military, like the army in particular. The army has a tradition of being very heavily oriented towards basically executive decision making. You know, officers make decisions. Um, I think the army has done some very impressive things in in our in our history, um, including in race relations. I think the army's done a much better job in managing race relations than say universities have. You know, where I've kind of I've been, and um, so I think we don't pay enough attention to like what did the army do that worked, and what could we learn from that, and uh, you know what are other cases where a strong executive's made uh, an important difference. The Fed was an interesting institution because it created a new executive, the chairman of the Fed. Paul Volcker was a very strong executive who came in in the early 80s and said, we're going to stop inflation. We're not going to leave it up to the courts. We're not going to expect the Congress to do it. You know, I, Paul Volcker, am going to do this. And he, you know, he raised interest rates. He caused a big recession. It was a difficult period. But he... Uh, got us out of this cycle that we thought we were stuck in of more and more inflation. So I think we need to think about where do you get uh, a strong principled uh, executive like like Paul Volcker? Um, and uh, how do we make sure that our government has more people uh, like him who can make the decisions we need we need the, the government to make? So um, kind of to go back to your, your prompt, um, I'm not worried about U.S. debt. Uh, I'm surprised and very pleasantly surprised at how inflation is coming down. Um, I'm pleased that you know the Biden administration has taken some executive decisions to encourage investment in things like uh, clean technology and in manufacturing. I think these are good decisions uh, led by the executive branch in the United States. But I worry that we're just not seeing as much um, executive um, leadership as um, as we need in a kind of a difficult, changing world. Yeah. And it's always great to have insights on the current economy and markets from a person that is an economist. But finally, well, actually, you know, and I'm, I'm not just an example. Kind of, I realized I'm also an old guy. You know, I, I just been around a long time. After after you know, forty years, you kind of seen uh, you seen a bunch of stuff, but. Uh, anyway, I, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, 100%. Your insights are always uh, valuable. But what advice would you offer to uh, aspiring students, economists, researchers, and just young professionals alike so that they can yeah. make uh, meaningful contributions to the field, sort of leaving that academia aspect and actually, you know, affecting the day-to-day? -day? Yeah. Um, I said one general piece of advice uh, that I recommend is to trust your instincts even when it means you find you're deviating a little bit from the um, the the consensus the accepted wisdom and I'll give you a specific example I think all of this hype about AI right now is is totally exaggerated it can do some interesting things they've made some real progress but we're, it's getting way overhyped. So I, I think there's going to be reaction against it. Um, 18 months ago, people were saying, like, cyber, uh, cyber currency is going to revolutionize the world. You know, Blockchain. how did that turn out? Uh, so 
So I think it's not a bad uh, idea to be skeptical of whatever the flavor of the month is. And then often they kind of lean against whatever is just like spun up. Um, so trust your judgment. Don't worry if the buzz is all going in one direction. It's, it's often wrong. Um, there's a different point that, uh, that I'm really persuaded about, which is that on any path that you're on, you know, any path you're following, you're likely to run into obstacles. And when you do, you may feel like you're faced with a choice of compromising what you believe in, not just about what's right or wrong, but what's true or false, but what's actually morally right or wrong. And the main message I would give to somebody is when you reach that point, remember that there's always another path. So many people feel like, well, this is my path. I'm going to just have to compromise my principles. I'm going to have to do something I think is wrong. I'm going to have to do something I feel like I have to keep secret and I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of. Don't do it. Go find another path. There's a path where you don't have to compromise. Um, and, you know, there's, there's times I've changed uh, what I was doing. I left the World Bank, I said, early, you know, early in my term because I got I just got crosswise with the, the leadership about what was the right thing to do. Um, so um, that was why I kind of had extra time on my hands and that's why I started teaching myself how to, to code because I, I left the bank early. Um, there are other times where I've been willing to just stick to my guns and uh, part of what I've realized, uh, again, this is a function of watching the world for, for 40 years. There are a lot of people who live with fear about secrets that are going to come out. There's compromises they've made or, you know, moral uh, decisions that they feel ashamed of. And that takes a toll. And I, I think people forget that even though it might have enhanced their career prospects or made them, you know, earn some more money or something, it, 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 it really undermines your sense of satisfaction uh, so so my advice is always keep some options open always be thinking about what you could do differently and if you are confronted with something especially when it involves when it involves a an ethical or moral um, compromise that you don't want to make don't do it just go you know find the other find the other path um, uh, and I, you know I this actually shows up in the way I supervise people. I, I ran a startup company for a few years, an educational startup. I, I you know, I also was a manager at the bank. Um, I, I ran an institute at NYU. One of the things I tell people I work for is, okay, what's your exit option? You know, if this doesn't work out, what do you, what's the next thing you're going to do? And with good people, it's kind of a conversation you're a little hesitant to have because you don't want them to leave and go take some other possibility. But even with my the best people, I think it's always worth talking about. Um, one of the things at the bank, I'm not sure anybody takes me seriously. They think I'm joking when I say this. But one of the things I saw at the bank is people are too well paid. And what's the problem with that? Well, they don't want to lose those jobs at the bank. And um, that means that they stay there for the pay, which is above what they would get in the, you know, the regular market even when they're unhappy. 
And so you end up with people who are kind of trapped doing things and being in positions and part of a uh, you know subset of the organization that's doing something where they're unhappy, but they hang on to it for the for the money. So they've lost that freedom to just say, you know, this isn't working for me. I'm going to go do something else. So um, I, I think it's it's terrible to feel trapped. I think it's always better to feel like there's a lot of other things you can do. So keep aware of what those things are. Talk to your boss about it. Talk to the people that you, you manage about what other things they can do. And then then if they stay working with you or you stay working for your boss, you, you know, you're, you're doing it because you're pleased about what you're doing, not because you, you feel trapped. So uh, be willing to take a different path. Be willing to switch when the path you're on seems like it's it's hitting a, a, a brick wall. That's great advice for listeners who are, you know, just starting their career. So with this in mind, hopefully we'll be better informed. And thank you to our listeners. Keep an eye out for our episode next week with the BOK student panel discussion. Thank you so much, Professor.